The psalmist wrote, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. Amen. Good morning, church family. It's good to be together here in the house of the Lord this morning. And I uh, want to welcome you here, both in person and online. We're grateful to worship together here. And it's just good to be together in the house of the Lord. I'm Randy, and um, privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. And we just very quickly want you to feel at home here at Windsor. And um, uh, so let us know you're here. There's a registration card. There's an app. And we also let us know what your prayer requests are. We pray for your uh, requests and encouragements every Tuesday morning in our staff meetings and uh, twice a month at our elders meetings. We, we care about uh, what is in your heart, and so please let us know. And I'll be in a place called the Fireside Room uh, with our staff and elders uh, through these glass doors and to the right, and I'd love a little bit of time with you if you're feeling new uh, and, uh, or if you just need prayer uh, or, or quick conversation. It would just be our delight to be with you together here this morning. So, uh, well, this is our teaching portion of our worship service, and uh, we have just been through a just a, a wonderful series through Psalm 23, where we've looked at uh, the the Lord is my shepherd, the 23rd Psalm, and then last week we looked at Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and so um, I just want to add a footnote to that series. <laughs> this morning and you're gonna you'll, you'll see how this ties in in just a minute but it's John chapter 13 if you have your Bibles I'd like you to turn meet me in John chapter 13 John chapter 13 and really the question is so what does it look like that Jesus is my shepherd and uh, there are few passages that better depict what it looks like what the good shepherd looks like uh, for his disciples, and then what he wants that to look like in our lives. So I'm going to be reading John 13, 1 through 17. John 13, 1 through 17. Uh, we should find the scripture verses that are up on the screen here this morning. And I want to put a tag on this message. I want to title this message, Basin Theology for the Ambassadors of Christ. Say that with me. Basin theology for the ambassadors of Christ. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He's completely clean, and, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Basin theology for the ambassadors of Christ. Basin theology. There are two basins in John's gospel. With one basin, Pontius Pilate washed his hands of Jesus. With another basin, Jesus used to wash the feet of his disciples in loving service of them. With one basin, hands did away with Jesus. With another basin, feet were cleansed by Jesus. Feet. Feet. We often pass by those words, don't we? My feet have never won a beauty contest. Have yours? Yeah. I mean, some people, they are endowed with fabulous flippers. Not me. I mean, my ten toes are introverts. They do better out of the public eye. Trust me. Uh, so, like, I have flat feet. I mean, there's no arch whatsoever. All right? I've, I've got to wear orthotics or I become very pained and 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 like my second toe is longer than my big toe and I, I tried to find an article to see something positive about that and all I got was just mythology but um, I, so I've had plantar fasciitis you know and, and and I've had planters warts now sit down don't leave 
okay, I know, you may be thinking if this is your first time that this might be your last time. I'm going somewhere with this, and it's simply this, that, you know, if you're not feeling a little right now, then you are not going to feel what John wants us to feel and know about these verses. Because your feet are personal. And we're very self-conscious about their appearance. And there is an intimacy and a tenderness and kind of a hygiene about touching someone's feet. And I fear that too often we read these verses in a sentimental, sanitized way. We often locate John chapter 13 in a stained glass chapel. As if Christ were some spiritual massage therapist in an upper room retreat. And I think doing so causes us to overlook how raw and ripe and pungent these verses are. And these verses also give us a depiction, a vision of the church that Christ died and rose for. This is Jesus' vision of not just the church then, but our church. Windsor Road, Christian Church, Champaign County, right here, right now. And the church that takes John 13 seriously is the church that will reveal God's glory. The church that takes John 13 seriously will display God's grace. It will heal hurting souls, and it will receive a well done from the king. You want that? You want that? Yeah, walk with me then. Verse 1 says it was the feast of the Passover, just before the feast of the Passover, that momentous holiday when Israel would remember their historic deliverance from Egyptian slavery through Moses. And this Passover feast where the death angel passed over, the Lord passed over those who had the blood of a lamb smeared on the doorpost. And they commemorated this with this meal. And that's the setting here in John's gospel. Before the feast of the Passover, the scripture says, he loved his own to the end. So John is alerting us here in these verses what Christian love looks like. Oh, there are so many different definitions about what love looks like, but John tells us what Jesus says love is. He loved his own to the end. Here's what Jesus means when he uses the word love. And and I can think of fewer contemporary definitions than the one given by a pastor named Paul David Tripp. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocity or the worthiness of the beloved. I'll say that again. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocity or the worthiness of the beloved. 
And that's what's going on here. Jesus' love is a sacrificing, stooping, serving, enduring love to the end. To, it's a love with, um, there's eight participles in five verses there. It's an active, knowing, loving, laying down, taking up kind of love. And John is quick to tell us in verse 3 that Jesus knew, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So whatever happens to Jesus happens with the full awareness he knows who he is and he knows what he possesses. He is the exalted son of God possessing all power. He knew where he had come from and he knows where he's going. That's why verse 1 says that the hour had come. You see the word there? Depart. It literally means to transport. That's a good verb. Jesus will be transporting out of this world and back to the Father. There really is a life beyond this life, church family. There really is. We have the testimony and the eyewitness testimony of one who came from the Father, transported to the world, and is transporting back to the Father. Christ is returning to glory through ignominious suffering. So this is no tragedy about Jesus being robbed of power by someone else. This is a story of glory. The cross is glory. If I be lifted up, Jesus said. It's about leveraging power for the flourishing of others. That's what this is about. So during supper, Christ got up to do what should have already been done. You see, in that culture, in that day, foot washing was as common as brushing your teeth. Uh, people had sandals, roads were dusty, Israel was arid, the summer was hot and dry, the winter was wet and muddy, and you'd enter a home, and there at the door, sandals would be peeled off, and there your feet would be washed. One scholar says it involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement, which was tipped out of houses into the streets, and animal waste, which was left on country roads and town streets. This task of hospitality to honor guests was normally assigned to slaves or servants of low status, so much so that foot washing was synonymous with slavery. Do you get that? The activity signaled the identity. What you did signaled who you were. So the disciples entered that upper room and they reclined around the table leaning on an elbow. Okay, So they're, they're kind of on couches and think of uh, like a, a, a U-shaped table, and then there's like couches around, and you kind of lean, and your feet extend back. That's what's going on. And, you know, it's as if all 12 were waiting for the slave to show up and wash feet. And the, the, no slave. 
and then follows the awkward, well, someone needs to do this, but not me. I mean, I love you, but I ain't going to wash your feet. And of course they would think that. Because if you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 24, in which Luke describes the very same scene that John is describing, Luke 22, 24 says, And there arose a dispute among them as to who was the greatest. Dispute. Philonikia. Dispute means love of strife. There arose a love of strife as to who was the greatest. <laughs> I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. On the eve of the cross, 12 self-promoting mouths with 24 filthy feet argued office proximity to Christ's oval office. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor in uh, Nazi Germany, gave his life. He once wrote that when people come together, there's almost this invisible, unconscious life and death contest. We meet someone, we size them up. We're looking for some strategic advantage, some angle by which we can, can assume some sort of control over that person. How can I figure out who this person is so that I can get what I want or negotiate what I need from them? You know, where do you work? Where'd you go to school? Who's your family? <laughs> you know, you know, in here are gifted people and more gifted people. There are strong people and stronger people. There's educated and more educated. There's popular and more popular. That both types, you know, they, we size each other up. We compare each other, justify themselves. And it occur, Bonhoeffer says, it occurs in the most polite way. Earlier in the Gospels, James and John wanted Jesus to grant the right for them to sit on either side of him in glory. Now that's bold. That's bold. The poet wrote, I am like James and John, Lord. I size other people in terms of what they can do for me and how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me a strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Oh, Lord. I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. And all of a sudden, there in that room, one of the disciples felt cool water splashing from the pitcher into the basin and that disciple must have thought well it is about time he looks down and it's Jesus it's Jesus do you see verses 4 and 5 he laid aside his outer garments taking a towel tied it around his waist then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I mean, it got awfully quiet. Huh? And, and, you know, John is the only gospel writer to mention this. The, the, I mean, the others include communion, but we would, we would not know this if it were not for John. And notice his eyewitness detail here. Jesus got 
up. Jesus took off his outer clothing. Jesus wrapped himself in a towel. Is that not a picture of the incarnation? Jesus disrobing his heavenly glory and putting on the towel of human flesh. And then he proceeded to do the unthinkable. He stooped to wash the mud-caked feet of his followers. It's as if John is saying, I cannot let this go unreported. And notice John's unmistakably intentional language. And here's the tie-in from last week. The shepherd king in John 10 lays down his life and takes it up again. The servant king in John 13 lays down his garment and takes it up again. Lays down, takes up. Same verbs. John knows this. John is connecting foot washing to the cross. And what what makes the fourth gospel account so extraordinary is that you will not find in ancient history a parallel of a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. You won't find that in ancient history. Jesus assaults traditional social hierarchy. He disrupts the normal categories of honor and shame. It's not just a, it's the, we're not talking about an honored teacher who is performing a shameful act. We're talking about a divine figure with cosmic sovereignty who has taken on the role of a slave. And John is quick to tell us that Jesus knows what Judas is up to. Verse 2 says, Satan had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. So, so John clearly states this before the washing so that we would know that Jesus washed all of their feet. All, all were present in that upper room. I mean, the major actors. Jesus, Satan, the Father, the most loyal disciples, even the betrayer. They're, they're all there. And Jesus was not ambushed or surprised by what Judas was about to do. In fact, when Judas left supper to betray Christ, his feet were clean. And then there's Peter. Lord, what are you doing? You, you don't understand right now, but you will. Well, is that not a picture of our life in Christ? Huh? Trust now, understand later. And, and Jesus did not feel obligated to explain to Peter's satisfaction why he was doing what he was doing. He's like, dude, trust me, just trust me. You know, Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, God's ways are not our ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Could you really respect a God that you could figure out? Peter says, you will never wash my... It's a, it's a double negative. It's, it's you'll no not ever wash my feet. <laughs> I mean, you, you know how filthy my feet are. You know, how, you know, how, you know where my feet have been. 
Henry Nouwen wrote, O Lord, you kneel before me. You hold my naked feet in your hands and you look up at me and you smile and I protest like Peter. Lord, you'll, you'll never wash my feet. I, I resist the love you offer. And, and what I want to say, Lord, is you don't really know me. You don't know my dark feelings. You don't know my pride. You don't know my lust. You don't know my greed. No, I, I'm not good enough to belong to you but, you, but you did with Peter. Lord, you look at me and you plainly, Jesus looks at Peter and plainly says, if I don't wash you, you can have no share with me. If, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. In other words, if I don't wash you, you can just leave with Judas. Before, you, you understand why. To refuse foot washing is to refuse the cross. And Jesus makes it plain. If I don't forgive you, you can't follow me. You need my grace. You, you must let me love you. You must let me cleanse you. You must let me sanctify you. I'm your only hope, man. Hell is that lonely place with unwashed feet. It's that self-induced, self-selected, solitary place where you live for all eternity with filthy feet. And the smell only gets worse. So Peter says, then wash my hands and my head too, Lord. Peter, shh. Just you know, work with me, man. It's just your feet. Just your feet. Uh, true, true disciples are forgiven of sin, and true disciples need to daily fight the sins that beset them. And uh, the Apostle Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 5 7, using the image of yeast and dough. Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump of dough as you really are unleavened. So, in other words, you, you don't, Peter, you don't need to be reconverted, but you just need to daily go to God and say, God, search me. If there's anything that's unbecoming or unpleasant to you, God, cleanse me. That's every day. True disciples hate the sins that beset them. True disciples need seek God every day. God, cleanse me. Cleanse me. But then Jesus says, not all of you are clean. He's talking about Judas. Not all of you are converted. So, so wow. Just because Christ washes your feet doesn't mean you're changed. So you need, you need more than clean feet to follow Christ. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. And verse 12 says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? So, so do you understand this? So the 12 were arguing about greatness, and Jesus was showcasing greatness. And, and so Christ interprets what he did in verses 12 through 17. In verses 12 to 17, Christ interprets his action in 1 through 11. He says, if I washed your feet, you need to wash one another's feet. 
notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I wash your feet, now you need to wash my feet. That's not what he said. He said, I want you to treat others as I've treated you. I want you to love others as I have loved you. What is not beneath my dignity is not beneath your dignity. And when there is a community in which each person washes feet and then receives washing, then there's, there's no hierarchy in that community, is there? Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's, it's, like, it's like John is just saying, Windsor Road, this needs to be a part of our DNA. This just needs to be a part of our thinking, our mindset. Verse 15, For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. And why? Verse 16, verse 16. A servant is not greater than his master. Will you repeat that after me? A servant is not greater than his master. One more time. A servant is not greater than his master. Hmm. So we who have been served by Christ now live out a vocation of serving others. And we're not talking about some sentimental, smushy service. We're talking about rugged, gritty service that self-sacrifices for the good of others, a service that does not demand reciprocation, a service that does not mandate the worthiness of the beloved. God's love to us empowers us to love each other. And it is a, it's a love that serves downward. And to the degree that we follow our king, his way, then our unity and this community, this spirit-filled community, his fellowship, his church will flourish and the world will see this community and, and want God. Want God. Back to Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He said, the church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Christ. Authority from on high comes to the child of God who wraps herself in a grimy servant's towel, taking no power for self, but leveraging it for the good of others. God did not give us brothers and sisters in his kingdom family for us to dominate them. Jesus' dominion overall is not a dominion of heavy-handedness. It's a dominion of service, deference, and humility. And when we embody this, and when we imitate this, and when we live this out, and oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, know this from my view, I believe we do. And, and we're all the better in Christ by doing so more and more and more. So, but, but I'll tell you, the primary obstacle to the advancement of the gospel is not out there in the world it's not it's it's in our hearts it's when we enter a room and sit at a table and wait for someone else to wash our filthy feet because we don't want to be inconvenienced <laughs> what is your capacity for inconvenience tolerance. Jesus says if you know these things, you're blessed, not if you talk about it, not if you diagram it, but if you do it, 
So here this next week, some of you are going to be in a room. And it's either going to be a classroom or a boardroom or an office or a meeting, a small group, large group. You're going to be in a place, and it's going to dawn on you. It's going to dawn on you that you are the most powerful person in the room. It's going to dawn on you that you know more than anybody else in that room. It's going to dawn on you that you have more experience, that you have power. You, you, you can help. You can hurt. You have the power to act in a way that's going to affect someone's future. These verses ask us this question. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? And John 13 teaches us why God loans us power. We are to leverage our power for the sake of others. And and some of you may be thinking, well, you know, Pastor, listen, in my world, the point of power is to keep it once you get it so that you can protect it and guard it. So why would I leverage it for others? Why would I do that? Why would I do that? Here's, Here's the deal, and this is why. Your power will eventually be taken from you. When we dig in to protect power with power, you talk about anxiety. The most anxiety-driven activity is the protection of power. Remember Venezuela's president, Hugo Chavez? His last words, his last words, I don't want to die, please don't let me die. But then he died. Your power will eventually be taken from you. And so so the wisest thing that we can do is to leverage power for the good of others. So what are you going to do when it dawns on you that you are the most powerful person in the room? John 13, whom will you serve? And will you embrace the inconvenience? Because Because brothers and sisters, love is inconvenient. Love is costly. Love means having to get up in the middle of the night to sit beside the bed of a frail, frightened family member who is dying all alone. Love means staying behind after a meeting and doing the washing up or putting out of the garbage without a word of complaint or boasting. Love love does the little, messy, annoying things which in the ancient world the slave would do. The, The things in which our world we always secretly hope somebody else will do so we don't have to be inconvenienced. Love is imitating him whose scepter is a towel. For the towel reveals the true nature of royalty. The towel points to selflessness. And the towel is the difference between those who have and have not been served by Christ. And and, and any unwillingness to take up the towel means, you know what this means? Here's the deal. Maybe you're saying, I'm tired of taking up the towel. Okay? And, 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 and don't just tell me to do more and try harder, Pastor. Okay, I won't. I won't. I won't. If you are feeling like, if, if you're feeling, I'm just, at my, I'm just at my capacity. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. You sit yourself down in a chair, and you bow your head, and you close your eyes. And it's a good thing we're about to have communion now. And you just sit yourself down and you bow your head 
and you let King Jesus wash your feet again. Because when he does, if we truly believe him, then his love will energize us and animate our hearts so that we can get up and humbly serve others. So, so, so the solution to more strength to serve others is not grunting your way through it. That's not the solution. The solution is sitting down and letting Jesus wash your feet again and again and hearing him say, I love you. I love you. I love you. Now, can you just imagine a congregation committed to leveraging what is on loan to them from God? Can you imagine a people who are out to love others because they have been overwhelmingly loved by the sovereign king of this universe? I mean, who could ignore that? A servant is not greater than his master. So this week, this week, church, when you find yourself in a situation where you're the most powerful person, oh God, help me leverage love for others because I'm not greater than you. Show me an opportunity so that I can be your ambassador for the good of others. You know, Lord, how I serve with great emotional fervor. Oh, you know how I do that in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and ask me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. Oh, brother, oh, sister, bow low.